0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Sorry. come back. Don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried to How get do the dead, dead come back, mother? Day, didn't you? What's you the died. secret? Full Circle by John Buchan. Peckweather, the historian, whose turn for storytelling came at our last dinner before the summer interregnum, apologised for reading his narrative. He was not good, he said but impromptu composition. He also congratulated himself on Leithan's absence. He comes into the story, and I should feel rather embarrassed talking about him to his face. But he has read my manuscript and approved it, so you have two reliable witnesses to a queerish tale. In his precise academic voice, he read what follows. The October night was brightening towards late afternoon when Leithen and I climbed the hill above the stream and came in sight of the house. All morning a haze with a sheen of pearl in it had lain on the folds of downland, and the vision of far horizons, which is the glory of Cotswold, had been veiled, so that every valley seemed a place enclosed and set apart. But now a glow had come into the air, and for a little the autumn lawns had the tints of summer. The gold of sunshine was warm on the grasses, and only the riot of colour in the berry-laden edges of the fields and the slender woodlands told of the failing year. We were looking into a green cup of the hills, and it was all a garden, a little place, bounded by slopes that defined its graciousness with no hint of barrier, so that a dweller there, though his view was but a half a mile on any side, would yet have the sense of dwelling on uplands and commanding the world. Round the top edge ran an old wall of stones, beyond which the October bracken flamed to the skyline. Inside were folds of ancient pasture, with here and there a thorn bush, falling to rose gardens, and on one side, to the smooth sward of a terrace above a tiny lake. At the heart of it stood the house, like a jewel, well set. It was a miniature, but by the hand of a master. The style was late 17th century, when an agreeable classic convention had opened up to sunlight and comfort the dark magnificence of the Tudor fashion. The place had the spacious air of a great mansion and was finished in every detail with a fine scrupulousness. Only when the eye measured its proportions with woods and the hillside did the mind perceive that it was a small dwelling. The stone of Cotswold takes curiously the colour of the weather. Under thunderclouds it will be as dark as basalt. On a grey day it is grey like lava, but in the sunshine it absorbs the sun, at the moment the little house was pale gold, like honey. Leithan swung a long leg across the stile. Pretty good, isn't it, he said. It's pure authentic Sir Christopher Wren. The name's worthy of it, too. It's called Full Circle. He told me its story. It had been built after the restoration by the Carteran family, whose wide domains ran into these hills. The Lord Carteran of the day was a friend of the Merry Monarch, but it was not as a sanctuary for orgies that he built the house. Perhaps he was tired of the gloomy splendour of Minster Carteron, and wanted a home of his own and not of his ancestors' choosing. He had an elegant taste in letters, as we can learn from his neat imitations of Marshall, his pretty bucolics, and the more than respectable Latin hexameters of his Ars vivendi. Being a great nobleman, he had the best skill of the day to construct his hermitage, and here he would retire for months at a time with like-minded friends to a world of books and gardens. He seems to have had no ill wishes; Contemporary memoirs speak of him charitably, and Dryden spared him four lines of encomium, a selfish old dog, Leithan called him. He had the good sense to eschew politics and enjoy life. His soul is in that little house. He only did one rash thing in his career. he anticipated the king, his master, by some years, and turning papist. I asked about its later history after his death. It passed to a younger branch of the Carterans. It left them in the 18th century, and the Applebys got it. They were a jovial lot of hunting squires, and let the library go to the dogs. Old Colonel Appleby was still alive when I came to Boroughby. Something went wrong in his inside when he was nearly 70, and the doctors knocked him off liquor. Not that he drank too much, though he did himself well. That had finished the poor old boy. He told me that it revealed to him the amazing truth, that during a long, and as he hoped, publicly useful life, he had never been quite sober. He was a good fellow, and I missed him when he died. The place went to a remote cousin called Giffen. Lethen's eyes, as they scanned the prospect, seemed amused. Julian and Ursula Giffen. I dare say you'll know the names. They always hunt in couples and write books about sociology and advanced ethics. And psychics, books called either The New This or That or Towards Something or Other. You know the sort of thing. They're deep in all the pseudosciences. Decent souls, but you can guess the type. I came across him in a case I had at the Old Bailey, defending a ruffian who was charged with murder. I hadn't a doubt that he deserved hanging on twenty counts, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict him on this one. Dodderidge was at his worst. It was just before they induced him to retire, and his handling of the jury was a masterpiece of misdirection. Of course there was a shindy. The thing was a scandal, and it stirred up all the humanitarians till the murderer was almost forgotten in the iniquities of Old Dodderidge. You must remember the case. It filled the papers for weeks. Well, it was in that connection that I fell in with the Giffins. I got rather to like them, and I've been to see them at their house in Hampstead. Golly, what a place! And colours that made you want to weep. I never met people with heads so full of feathers. I said something about that being an odd milieu for him. Oh, I like human beings, all kinds. It's my profession to study them, for without that the practice of law would be a lean affair. There are hordes of people like the Giffins, only not so good, for they really do have hearts of gold. They are the rootless stuff in the world today, in revolt against everything and everybody with any ancestry, a kind of innocent self-righteousness, wanting to be the people with whom wisdom begins and ends. They are mostly sensitive and tender-hearted, but they wear themselves out in an eternal dissidence. Can't build, you know, for they object to all tools, but very ready to crab. They scorn any form of Christianity, but they'll walk miles to patronise some wretched sect that has the merit of being brand new. Pioneers, they call themselves. Funny little unclad people adventuring into the cold desert with no maps. Giffen once described himself and his friends to me as forward-looking, but that, of course, is just what they are not. To tackle the future, you must have a firm grip of the past, and for them, the past is only a pathological curiosity. They're up to their necks in the mud of the present, but good after a fashion, and innocent, sordidly innocent. Fate was in an ironical mood when it saddled them with that wicked little house. Wicked did not seem to me to be a fair word. It sat honey-coloured among its gardens with the meekness of a dove. The sound of a bicycle on the road behind us made us turn round, and Leithan advanced to meet a dismounting rider. He was a tallish fellow, some forty years old perhaps, with one of those fluffy blond beards that have never been shaved. Short-sighted, of course, and wore glasses. Biscuit-coloured knickerbockers and stockings clad his lean limbs. Leithan introduced me. We're walking to Boroughby and stopped to admire your house. Could we just have a glimpse inside? I want Peckweather to see the staircase. Mr. Giffen was very willing. I've been over to Clyston to send a telegram. We have some friends for the weekend who might interest you. Won't you stay for tea? There was a gentle formal courtesy about him, and his voice had the facile intonations of one who loves to talk. He led us through a little gate and along a shorn green walk among the bracken to a postern which gave entrance to the garden. Here, though it was October, there was still a bright show of roses, and the jet of water from the leaden cupid dripped noiselessly among fallen petals. And then we stood before the doorway, above which the old Carterton had inscribed a line of Horace. I've never seen anything quite like that little hall. There were two, indeed, separated by a staircase of wood that looked like olive. Both were paved with black and white marble, and the inner was oval in shape, with a gallery supported on slender walnut pillars. It was all in miniature, but it had a spaciousness which no mere size could give. Also. It seemed to be permeated by the quintessence of sunlight. Its air was of long-descended, confident, equable happiness. There were voices on the terrace beyond the hall. Giffen led us into a room on the left. You remember the house in Colonel Appleby's time, Leithan? This was the chapel. It had always been the chapel. You see, the change we've made. I beg your pardon, Mr. Peckweather. You're not by any chance a Roman Catholic. The room had a white panelling and on two sides, deep windows. At one end was a fine Italian shrine of marble, and the floor was mosaic, blue and white, in a quaint Byzantine pattern. There was the same air of sunny cheerfulness as in the rest of the house. No mystery could find a lodgment here. It might have been a chapel for three centuries, but the place was pagan. The Giffen's changes were no sort of desecration. A green baize table filled most of the floor, surrounded by chairs like a committee room. On new raw wood shelves were files of papers and stacks of blue books, and those desiccated works into which reformers of society torture the English tongue. Two typewriters stood on a side table. It's our workroom, Giffen explained, where we held our Sunday moots. Ursula thinks that a weekend is wasted unless it produces some piece of real work. Often a quite valuable committee has its beginning here. We try to make our home a refuge for busy workers where they need not idle, but can work under happy conditions. A college situate in a clearer air, Lethen quoted, but Giffen did not respond except with a smile. He'd probably never heard of Lord Falkland. A woman entered the room, a woman who might have been pretty, if she had taken a little pains. Her reddish hair was drawn tightly back and dressed in a hard knot, and her clothes were horribly incongruous in a remote manor house. She had bright, eager eyes like a bird and hands that fluttered nervously. She greeted Lethen with warmth. We've settled down marvellously, she told him. Julian and I feel as if we'd always lived here and our life has arranged itself so perfectly. My mother's cottages in the village will soon be ready and the club is to be opened next week. Julian and I will carry on the classes ourselves for the first winter. Next year, we hope to have a really fine programme. And then, it's so pleasant to be able to entertain one's friends. Won't you stay to tea? Dr. Swope is here, and Mary Elliston, and Mr. Perky Blake, who you know, the Member of Parliament. Must you hurry off? I'm so sorry. But what do you think of our workroom? It was utterly terrible when we first came here, a sort of decayed chapel like a withered tuberose. We have let the air of heaven into it. I Observed that I had never seen a house so full of space and light. Are oh, you noticed that? It's a curiously happy place to live in. Sometimes I'm almost afraid to feel so light-hearted. But we look on ourselves as only trustees. It's a trust we have to administer for the common good. You know, it's a house on which you can lay down your own impress. I can imagine places which dominate the dwellers, but full circle is plastic. And we can make it our own just as much as if we had planned it and built it. That's our chief piece of good fortune. We took our leave for we had no desire for the company of Dr. Swope and Mr. Percy Blaker. When we reached the highway, we halted and looked back on the little jewel. Shafts of the westering sun now caught the stone and turned the honey to ripe gold. Thin spires of amethyst smoke rose into the still air. I thought of the well-meaning restless couple inside its walls, and somehow they seemed out of the picture. They simply didn't matter. The house was a thing for I had never met in inanimate stone such an air of gentle masterfulness. It had a personality of its own, clean-cut and secure, like a high-born old dame among the females of profiteers, and Mrs. Giffen claimed to have given it her impress. That night in the library at Boraby, leath discoursed of the restoration, Boraby, of which by the expenditure of much care and a good deal of money he has made a civilised dwelling, is a Tudor manor of the Cotswold type, with high-pitched narrow roofs and tall stone chimneys rising sheer from the meadows, with something of the massiveness of a border keep. He nodded towards the linenfold panelling and the great carven chimney-piece. In this kind of house you have the mystery of the elder England. What was Raleigh's phrase? High thoughts and divine contemplations. The people who built this sort of thing lived close to another world, and they thought bravely of death. It doesn't matter who they were, crusaders or Elizabethans or Puritans. They all had poetry in them, and the heroic, and the great unworldliness. They had marvellous spirits and plenty of joys and triumphs, but they also had their hours of black gloom. Their lives were like our weather, storm and sun. One thing they never feared, death. He walked too near them all their days to be a bogey. But the restoration was a sharp break. It brought paganism into England, paganism and the art of life. No people have ever known better the secret of a bland happiness. Look at full circle. There are no dark corners there. The man that built it knew all there was to be known about how to live. The trouble was that they didn't know how to die. That was the one shadow on the glass, so they provided for it in the pagan way. They tried magic. They never became true Catholics. They were always pagan to the end. But they smuggled a priest into their lives. He was a kind of insurance premium against unwelcome mystery. It was not until nearly two years later that I saw the Giffins again. The mayfly season was near its close, and I had snatched a day on a certain limpid Cotswold River. There was another man on the same beat fishing from the opposite bank, and I watched him with some anxiety, for a duffer would have spoilt my day. To my relief, I recognised Giffin. With him it was easy to come to terms, and presently the water was parceled out between us. We foregathered for luncheon and I stood watching while he neatly stalked Rose and landed a trout. I confessed to some surprise, first that Giffen should be a fisherman at all, for it was not in keeping with my old notion of him, and second, that he should cast such a workmanlike line. As we lunched together, I observed several changes. He had shaved his fluffy beard, and his face was notably less lean, and had the clear, even sunburn of the countryman. His clothes, too, were different. They also were workmanlike, and looked as if they belonged to him. No more the uneasy knickerbockers of the Sunday golfer. I'm desperately keen, he told me. You see, it's only my second mayfly season, and last year I was no better than a beginner. I wish I'd known long ago what good fun fishing was. Isn't this a blessed place? And he looked up through the canopy of flowering chestnuts to the June sky. I'm glad you've taken to sport, I said, even if you only come here for the weekends. Sport lets you into the secrets of the countryside. Oh, we don't go much to London now, was his answer. We sold our Hampstead house a year ago. I can't think how I ever could stick that place. Ursula takes the same view. I wouldn't leave Oxfordshire just now for a thousand pounds. Do you smell the hawthorn? Last week, this meadow was scented like paradise. Do you know, Lethan's a queer fellow. I asked why. He once told me that this countryside in June made him sad. He said it was too perfect a thing for fallen humanity. I call that morbid. Do you see any sense in it? I knew what Lethen meant, but it would have taken too long to explain. I feel warm and good and happy here, he went on. I used to talk about living close to nature. Rot! I didn't know what nature meant. Now, he broke off. By Jove, there's a kingfisher. That is, only the second I've seen this year. They're getting uncommon with us. With us, I like that phrase. He was becoming a true countryman. We had a good day. Not extravagantly successful, but satisfactory. And he persuaded me to come home with him to full circle for the night, explaining that I could catch an early train next morning at the junction. So we extricated a little two-seater from a thicket of lilacs, and he drove me through four miles of sweet-scented dusk, with nightingales shouting in every thicket. I changed into a suit of his flannels in the bedroom, looking out on the little lake where trout were rising, and I remember that I whistled from pure light-heartedness. In that adorable house, one seemed to be still breathing the air of the spring meadows. Dinner was my first big surprise. It was admirable, plain but perfectly cooked, and with that excellence of basic material, which is the glory of a well-appointed country house. There was wine, too, which I am certain was a new thing. Giffen gave me a bottle of a sound claret, and afterwards some more than decent port. My second surprise was my hostess. Her clothes, like her husband's, must have changed, for I didn't notice what she was wearing, and I had noticed it only too clearly the last time we met. More remarkable was the difference in her face. For the first time I realised that she was a pretty woman. The contours had softened and rounded, and there was a charming well-being in her eyes, very different from the old restlessness. She looked content, infinitely content. I asked her about her mother's cottages. She laughed cheerfully. I gave them up after the first year. They didn't mix well with the village people. I'm quite ready to admit my mistake, and it was the wrong kind of charity. The Londoners didn't like it, felt loathsome and sighed for the fried fish shop, and the village women were shy of them, afraid of infectious complaints, you know. Julian and I have decided that our business is to look after our own people. It may have been malicious, but I said something about the wonderful scheme of village education. Another relic of cockneyism, laughed the lady, but Giffen looked a trifle shy. I gave it up because it didn't seem worthwhile. What's the use of spoiling a perfectly wholesome scheme of life by introducing unnecessary complications? Medicine's no good unless a man's sick, and these people aren't sick. Education is the only cure for certain diseases the modern world has engendered but if you don't find the disease, the remedy is superfluous. The fact is, I hadn't the face to go on with the thing. I wanted to be taught rather than to teach. There's a whole world around me of which I know very little, and my first business is to get to understand it. Any village poacher can teach me more of the things that matter than what I have to tell him. Besides, we have so much to do, his wife added. There's the house and the garden and the home farm and the property. It isn't large, but it takes a lot of looking after. The dining room was long and low-ceilinged and had a white panelling in bold relief. Through the windows came odours of the garden and a faint tinkle of water. The dusk was deepening and the engravings in their rosewood frames were dim, but sufficient light remained to reveal the picture above the fireplace. It showed a middle-aged man in the clothes of the later Carolines, the plump tapering fingers of one hand held a book The other was hidden in the folds of a flowered waistcoat. The long, curled wig framed a delicate face with something of the grace of youth left to it. There were quizzical lines about the mouth, and the eyes smiled pleasantly, yet very wisely. It was the face of a man I should have liked to dine with. He must have been the best of company. Giffen answered my question. That's the Lord Carterton who built the house. No, no relation. Our people were the Applebys who came in 1753. We've both fallen so deep in love with Full Circle that we wanted to see the man who conceived it. I had some trouble getting it. It came out of the Minster Carter and Sale, and I had to give a dealer twice what he paid for it. It's a jolly thing to live with. It was indeed a curiously charming picture. I found my eyes straying to it till the dusk obscured the features. It was the face of one wholly at home in a suave world, Learned in all the urbanities, a good friend, I thought, the old lord must have been, and a superlative companion. I could imagine neat Horatian tags coming ripely from his lips. Not a strong face, but somehow a dominating one. The portrait of the long-dead gentleman had still the atmosphere of life. Giffen raised his glass of port to him as we rose from the table as if to salute a comrade. We moved to the room across the hall, which had once been the Giffen's workroom, the cradle of earnest committees and weighty memoranda. This was my third surprise. Bays-covered table and raw wood shelves had disappeared. The place was now half-smoking room, half-library. On the walls hung a fine collection of coloured sporting prints, and below them were ranged low heckle white bookcases. The lamplight glowed on the ivory walls, and the room, like everything else in the house, was radiant. Above the mantelpiece was a stag's head, a fair eleven-pointer. Giffen nodded proudly towards it. I got that last year at McRae, my first stag. There was a little table with an array of magazines and weekly papers. Some amusement must have been visible in my face as I caught sight of various light-hearted sporting journals, for he laughed apologetically. You mustn't think that Ursula and I take in that stuff for ourselves. It amuses our guests, you know. I dared say it did. But I was convinced that the guests were no longer Dr. Swope and Mr. Percy Blaker. One of my many failings is that I can never enter a room containing books without scanning the titles. Giffin's collection won my hearty approval. There were the very few novelists I can read myself Miss Austen and Sir Walter and the admirable Marriott. There was a shelf full of memoirs and a good deal of 17th and 18th century poetry. There was a set of the classics in fine editions. Badonis and Baskervilles and such like. There was much county history, and one or two valuable old herbals and itineraries. I was certain that two years before, Giffin would have had no use for literature except some muddy Russian oddments, and I am positive that he would not have known the name of Surtees. Yet there stood the tall octavos recording the unedifying careers of Mr. Jorocks, Mr. Facy Romford, and Mr. Soapy Sponge. I was a little bewildered as I stretched my legs in a very deep armchair. Suddenly, I had a strong impression of looking on at a play, moving docilely at the orders of a masterful stage manager, and yet with no sense of bondage. And as I looked on, they faded off the scene, and there was only one personality, that house, so serene and secure, smiling at our modern antics, but weaving all the while an iron spell round its lovers. For a second, I felt an oppression, as of something to be resisted. But no, there was no oppression. The house was too well-bred and disdainful to seek to captivate. Only those who fell in love with it could know its mastery, for all love exacts a price. It was far more than a thing of stone and lime. It was a creed, an art, a scheme of life, older than any Carteran, older than England. Somewhere far back in time, in Rome, in Attica, or in an Aegean island, there must have been such places. But then they called them temples, and gods dwelt in them. I was roused by Giffen's voice discoursing of his books. I've been rubbing up on my classics again, he was saying. Queer thing, but ever since I left Cambridge, I've been out of the mood for them, and I'm shockingly ill-read in English literature. I wish I had more time for reading, for it means a lot to me. There's such an embarrassment of riches here, said his wife. The days are far too short for all there is to do. Even when there's nobody staying in the house, I find every hour occupied. It's delicious to be busy over the things one really cares for. All the same, I wish I could do more reading, said Giffen. I've never wanted to so much before. But you come in tired from shooting and sleep sound till dinner, said the lady, laying an affectionate hand on his shoulders. They were very happy people, and I like happiness. Self-absorbed, perhaps, but I prefer selfishness in the ordinary way of things. We are, most of us, selfish dogs, and altruism makes us uncomfortable. But I had somewhere in my mind a shade of uneasiness, for I was the witness of a transformation too swift and violent to be wholly natural. Years, no doubt, turn our eyes inward and abate our heroics, but not a trifle of two or three. Some agency had been at work here some agency other and more potent than the process of time. The thing fascinated and partly frightened me, for the Giffins, though I scarcely dared to admit it, had deteriorated. They were far pleasant to people. I liked them infinitely better. I hoped to see them often again. I detested the type they used to represent and shunned it like the plague. They were wise now and mellow, and most agreeable human beings, but some virtue had gone out of them. An uncomfortable virtue, no doubt, but a virtue. Something generous and adventurous. Before, their faces had had a sort of wistful kindness. Now, they had geniality, which is not the same thing. What was the agency of this miracle? It was all around me. The ivory panelling, the olive wood staircase, the lovely pillared hall. I got up to go to bed with a kind of awe on me. As Mrs. Giffen lit my candle. She saw my eyes wandering among the gracious shadows. Isn't it wonderful, she said, to have found a house which fits us like a glove. No, closer. Fits us as a bearskin fits the bear. It has taken our impress like wax. Somehow, I didn't think that the impress had come from the Giffen's side. A November afternoon found Leithan and myself jogging homewards from a run with the Haythrop. It had been a wretched day. Twice we had found and lost, and then a deluge had set in which scattered the field. I had taken a hearty toss into a swamp and got as wet as a man may be, but the steady downpour soon reduced everyone to a like condition. When we turned towards Boroughby the rain ceased, and an icy wind blew out of the east which partially dried our sopping clothes. All the grace had faded from the Cotswold valleys. The streams were brown torrents, the meadows lagoons, the ridges bleak and grey and a sky of scurrying clouds cast leaden shadows. It was a matter of ten miles to Borobie. We had long ago emptied our flasks, and I longed for something hot to take the chill out of my bones. Let's look in at full circle, said Leithan, as we emerged on the high road from a muddy lane. We'll make the Giffins give us tea. You'll find changes there. I asked what changes, but he only smiled and told me to wait and see. My mind was busy with surmises as we rode up the avenue. I thought of drink or drugs and promptly discarded the notion. Full circle was above all things decorous and wholesome. Leithen couldn't mean the change in the Giffen's ways which had so impressed me a year before, for he and I had long discussed that. I was still puzzling over his words when we found ourselves in the inner hall with the Giffens making a hospitable fuss over us. The place was more delectable than ever. Outside was a dark November day yet the little house seemed to be transfused with sunshine. I don't know by what art the old builders had planned it, but the airy pilasters, the perfect lines of the ceiling, the soft colouring of the wood seemed to lay open the house to a clear sky. Logs burned brightly on the massive steel andirons, and the scent and the fine blue smoke of them strengthened the illusion of summer. Mrs. Giffen... Would have had us change into dry things, but Leithan pleaded awaiting dinner at Boroughby. The two of us stood by the fireplace drinking tea, the warmth drawing out a cloud of vapour from our clothes to mingle with the wood smoke. Giffen lounged in an armchair, and his wife sat by the tea table. I was looking for the changes of which Leithan had spoken. I didn't find them in Giffen. He was much the same as I remembered him on that June night when I had slept here, a trifle fuller in the face, perhaps. A little more placid about the mouth and eyes. He looked a man completely content with life. His smile came readily and his easy laugh. Was it my fancy or had he acquired a look of the picture in the dining room? I nearly made an errand to go and see it. It seemed to me that his mouth had now something of the portrait's delicate complaisance. Leely would have found him a fit subject, though he might have boggled at his lean hands. But his wife. Ah, there the changes were unmistakable. She was comely now rather than pretty, and the contours of her face had grown heavier. The eagerness had gone from her eyes and left only comfort and good humour. There was a suspicion, ever so slight, of rouge and powder. She had a string of good pearls, the first time I had seen her wear jewels. The hand that poured out the tea was plump, shapely and well cared for. I was looking at a most satisfactory mistress of a country house, who would see that nothing was lacking to the part. She talked more and laughed oftener. Her voice had an airy lightness, which would have made the silliest prattle charming. We're going to fill the house with young people and give a ball at Christmas, she announced. This hall is simply clamouring to be danced in. You must come, both of you, promise me. And Mr. Leathen, it would be very kind if you brought a party from Boroughby. Young men, please, we're overstocked with girls in these parts. We must do something to make the country cheerful in time. I observed that no season could make full circle other than cheerful. How nice of you, she cried. To praise a house is to praise the householders, for a dwelling is just what its inmates make it. Boraby is you, Mr. Leithan, and full circle is us. Shall we exchange, Leithan asked. She made a mouth. Boroughby would crush me, but it suits a gothic survivor like you. Do you think you would be happy here? Happy, said Leithon thoughtfully. Happy? Yes, undoubtedly. But it might be bad for my soul. There's just time for a pipe, Giffen, and then we must be off. I was filling my pipe as we crossed the outer hall and was about to enter the smoking room I so well remembered when Giffen laid a hand on my arm. We don't smoke in there now, he said hastily. He opened the door and I looked in. The place had suffered its third metamorphosis. The marble shrine, which I had noticed on my first visit, had been brought back, and the blue mosaic pavement and the ivory walls were bare. At the eastern end stood a little altar, with above it a copy of a Correggio Madonna, a faint smell of incense hung in the air and the fragrance of hothouse flowers. It was a chapel, but I swear a more pagan place than when it had been the workroom or smoking room. Giffen gently shut the door. Perhaps you didn't know, but some months ago my wife became a Catholic. It's a good thing for women, I think. It gives them a regular ritual for their lives. So we restored the chapel. It had always been there in the days of the Cartrans and the Applebees. And you? I asked. He shrugged his shoulders. I don't bother much about these things, but I propose to follow suit. It'll please Ursula and do no harm to anybody. We halted on the brow of the hill and looked back on the garden valley. Leithon's laugh as he gazed had more awe than mirth in it. That wicked little house. I'm going to hunt up every scrap I can find about old Tom Carter. And He must have been an uncommon clever fellow. He's still alive down there and making people do as he did. In that kind of place you may expel the priest and sweep it and garnish it. But he always returns. The rack was lifting before the wind and a shaft of late watery sun fell on the grey walls, it seemed to me that the little house wore an air of gentle triumph. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back. back. Don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? John Buchan. John Buchan, officially First Baron Tweedsmuir, was born in 1875 in Perth, Scotland, and died in 1940, aged only 64, in Montreal, Canada. He was Governor General of Canada until he died in office. His father was a minister of the Church of Scotland, and as we've seen, many of our ghost story writers are the children of clergymen. Buchan studied classics at the University of Glasgow and then moved to further his studies to Oxford University. After that, after graduating, he went to South Africa, where he was private secretary to the High Commissioner of South Africa. Like Kipling, who we read last week, Buchan was a conservative son of the British Empire. But Buchan was a bit of a softie for a conservative. And When later he was MP for Peebles, a place just south of Edinburgh if you don't know it, He supported votes for women, national health insurance for the poor, and curtailing the power of the House of Lords. Later, when he went to Canada, he was very keen on the identity of Canada as its own country, and was interested in fostering a sense of Canadian identity, separate from just being a province of the British Empire. And he was also interested in Native American culture, or First Nation culture, as they say in Canada. He was a Scot, obviously, but he wasn't a Scottish nationalist in those days. Many, most Scots saw the future of their country as being tied to the future of the United Kingdom. And, of course, many still do. Not contentious then, but it is a little bit more now. When Buchan returned from South Africa, he was called to the English Bar as a barrister, If he'd stayed in Scotland, he would have been an advocate. I'm not sure in North America they have that separation between a solicitor and a barrister, which in England, the solicitor is the person who doesn't appear in court, generally doesn't wear a wig, and prepares all the papers and supporting material for the case, while the barrister is Rumpole of the Bailey, who stands up and uses all his techniques of oratory and wit to convince people that his side, whether he's defending or... Prosecuting is correct, even if it isn't. But there we are. So he did that as well. And at the same time, he became editor of The Spectator, which is a, a still existing right wing conservative magazine. He was a writer, and so he worked for the Ministry of Propaganda. And then in 1916, he actually went to the front where he was attached to the Intelligence Corps. Now that was in 1916. In 1915, He published his most famous spy story, The 39 Steps, which has been made into movies a couple of times. Then in 1935, Buchan went as Governor-General to Canada. And he'd always liked Canada, and he'd written about it when he was a journalist and fought alongside Canadian troops in the First World War. And as I said, he was very keen on encouraging a distinct Canadian identity. He was host for the tour of King George VI on the King's Tour of Canada, And then at Rideau Hall, he suffered a stroke. And then when he fell, he suffered a head injury and he died of that. Interestingly, he was um, treated by the Canadian neurologist, Wilder Penfield. Penfield was famous for his experiments in stimulating parts of the human brain when his patients were awake. So he'd take the skull off, he'd touch different parts with electrodes and the person would then report the experiences. And so he was able to find that certain parts of the brain seemed to summon forth very vivid, full sensory experiences, which is very interesting. It may have been debunked a little bit, actually, since then. I was going to say, when I was recording the story, I had the most immense technical difficulties, and I hope they won't continue in this part. This is another night. And it was like I couldn't record the story. It kept recording on multiple tracks. Bits kept flipping round. It was really, it was, I don't know what was going on, uh, my conclusion was the story itself was haunted and it wouldn't be, behave itself. Full circle, you remember that last week we did the um, story They by Rudyard Kipling and House Beautiful was a major character in the story in the tradition of the Gothic residence. But as I said before, the Gothic residence is both, can be both appalling, but is also magical as well and paradisical, I can't actually say that word. So Full Circle is a massive character in this story, the house. And I haven't quite disentangled the name Full Circle. I should probably Google it. Um, You know, what is its um, significance? But we learn that after the restoration of the monarchy of Charles II after the English Civil War in the 17th century, it was a time, because the Puritans who'd been in control had banned pretty much everything, smashed all the icons, banned dancing. You couldn't do anything. Ban Christmas actually tried to do that. So when the king came back, it was time for a good time. And so I think that's a reference to the orgies and things. They were, they were licentious in those days. Interestingly, Lethen, who speaks for Buchan, I guess, talks about how these people who often converted to Catholicism, they weren't real Catholics. They were, they were interested in the magic. And he says they were actual pagans, you know, in the old classical sense of pre-Christian Rome and he says, talks about the paganism that suffuses the house. So the house is magic. It has Lord Carteran's soul in it, and he manages to convert the people who live in the house into easygoing, genial country sorts who are just really laid back and interested in living a shallow but pleasant existence. Uh, Lethan doesn't really approve of this, and he's, he could never live there. And uh, he prefers his own gothic place where he can think about death, which uh, seems to be some kind of belief of Buchans that uh, life, probably from his Scottish Calvinistic background, that life is meant to be dark and full of suffering. Me, myself, I'm pretty keen on uh, a bland happiness as uh, it's condemned. So the structure of the story is really interesting. It's, it's really nicely done. So the first bit is like a preface and we have the description of the house. But you can see it. The first is is autumn, golden, radiant. The next time is high summer in June and it's absolutely wonderful, full of lilacs and buzzing bees and things like that. The final time is in a dreary November day when they've just come back from the hunt and our man peckweather has been thrown by his horse into a bog so he's very wet and they've just got poured upon. So we see the house in three seasons. That, in a sense, is part of the structure. So it's the three visits, and we see the ongoing transformation. So the first, we have the introduction to the house, and then we meet Mr. Giffen, and he's a bit bit prissy, a bit too goody-two-shoes, interested in, you know, Buckingham would have hated all this, this liberal Hampstead stuff about educating the poor and Providing homes for poor Cockney women. And I think that when we see a reference to this, you know, where she gives all that up because then she has this noble savage thing whereby I think the Tory view of the countryside is that it's peopled by decent but simple peasants who are the salt of the earth and will do as long as they know their place and, and they do know their place and everything is right in the world with the people. Anyway, let's not get too political. So the Giffins are these urban socialists, probably. Fabians, I would guess. And they change and they start reading the stories of Mr. Soapy Sponge and things like that and uh, not really care and put weight on, actually, and not really care about anything. So, and that is the pagan spirit of the house. I guess that what it appeals to me, again, is the, the evocation of the countryside, particularly, I suppose, in this case, the English countryside. Somebody asked me why, why I haven't done any Scottish stories. I'm very fond of Scotland. I'm half Scottish and spent a fair bit of time in Scotland, and I don't know. One of my go, I do my Christmas ghost stories. I do audiobooks, obviously. I do uh, an Edinburgh accent. and a story in, in an Edinburgh accent? I, I, there is a bit of Glaswegian in it as well, which I took great pleasure in. You don't want to starve me. You've got, if you're Glaswegian, you're going to just really draw your vowels out. Anyway, so that's that. And next week, I'm going to go back to Edith Wharton, who is American, obviously, but this story is set in England again, and it's this English country house thing. And So I'm looking forward to that. And the final one of the four I've got in mind for doing, of you know, the house beautiful, the, the magical, building as the main character, or a significant character, is one by Shirley Jackson, another American writer, but again set in England, so you'll be spared my American accent. Those are the four, and then I'll think about something else. I've already got, I want to do an Indian one, actually, I don't know if I said that, I don't know. I think I did say that in the last, uh, last episode. Anyway, ramble, ramble. So, I'll see you next week. I've actually done my call to action as a separate piece. So I'm going to do that next. Okay. Hello, this is Tony Walker, the narrator and producer of the classic Ghost Stories podcast. As a sideline, I've produced two two two-and-a-half-hour audiobooks, one of which is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the other is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. They're both available. And each one is one single file that you can listen to continuously and added some music and sound effects at the beginning. They're for sale on Music Glue and you can pay what you want. The minimum, I think, is 30 pence, which is about 50 cents American. But you can pay more than that if you wish. So if you wanted to get those, go over to Music Glue. The links are in the show notes. It's marketed under Eerie Cumbria because that is my live storytelling persona. So, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and a separate audiobook of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, available from as little as 30 pence each, for two and a half hours each, seems a good deal to me.